Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Loader T3 is over. Give it to us raw and wriggling. The fate of the world will soon be decided. The dominion of evil grows even stronger. There is a union now between the two towers. Barador. Fortress of the Dark Lord Sauron and Orthanc, stronghold of the wizard Saruman. The peril of the Ringbearer deepens. An unseen danger draws closer. For there is another who hunts the ring. This story, my precious, and we want it. Hi, Andy. It's uh, second movie time. Time to talk about the middle movie, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Lord of the Rings, The Empire Strikes Back. Everything's sad. (laughs) No one's happy, and it's very dirty and wet. Can I start (laughs) this conversation? I I just want to get your sense of story construction for this particular story. Because the book, and we talked about this a little bit last time, or might have been in our member pre-show chat, but our history with the the books and everything, this particular book, each of the books of Lord of the Rings is written. It's it's like two books within it. Right? Two books. Um, six, Lord of the Rings is six books. Yeah, six books. And this second book, which c- comprises, it's terrible. This second novel, which comprises of books three and four, it's bifurcated between book three is the Treason of Isengard, and it's all about you know our three. Heroes, I guess we'll just call them Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas, as they pursue the Uruk Hai to uh, track down um, who had taken uh, Marion Pippin and are trying to get back to Saruman. Um, it's the story of Edoras. It's the story of uh, the Ents. All of that is book three. And it ends with, actually, interestingly, book three actually ends um, partway into the film version of The Return of the King. We don't necessarily need to yes. get into that. Right. Regardless, it's their story. Book four is The Ring Goes East, and that follows Frodo and Sam from the time they've left, and they go through um, Emin Mule, they catch Gollum, who takes them through the Dead Marshes, they go to the Black Gate, they have a run-in with Faramir, and it actually leads all the way up past Shelob. I mean, it, it again, also goes for quite a ways. So it's completely separated into two separate stories in that particular book the two towers i mean obviously the world of cinema is so much different you wouldn't want to necessarily have one story and then the other story but how do you think that he managed jumping back and forth between the two to kind of create one effective story i like it so much better i really do and i think this is the same the same thing happened with um, george martin with two of the books of the of game of thrones where you have so many characters and so much that you want to jam in here and tolkien sitting here with like 500 different protagonists <laughs> in their own little storyline that he needs to weave into the story somehow obviously speaking with great exaggeration and one of the easiest ways to do that from the narrative point of view is to write an entire separate linear story about them moving across time. I I think that's really hard for me because 
of a number of things, not least of which is attention. Like I am, I find it when I'm, when I'm stuck for a long period of time with characters that I don't like as much their journey, I need to cut away for a little bit, right? I need to cut away and give me something to, to keep snacking on. And in this example, this movie, I feel like there is so much going on with Frodo, Sam, and Gollum that I am just done. Until we get to Faramir, I have, like, I have get so bored across the marshes and, uh, like, dealing with, you know, salts and Lemba spread and all of their, their journey across hard things, you know, getting to the Black Gate and down until they run into Faramir. I, I need those cuts back and forth to what's going on with, um, Aragorn and, and Gimli and Legolas. So I think it, it builds a great a much better sense of rhythm and pace to cut back and forth and let us know that all these things are happening at the same time. So to me, it it works very well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think I have the issues you do with any of those particular scenes. I quite like all of those scenes. Uh, but to your point, I do think that it was, uh, I mean, I, I think that he found a smart way to kind of continue the story threads moving between both stories over time. It makes sense to do it this way. Uh, absolutely. I just, I but, feel but the question, that. Does it come at a cost for you? Like, is no, there a no, cost of doing that? There's know? not a cost. And I think, effectively, I think what Jackson has done is found better ways to uh, to weave the stories together and to connect them. In fact, I think one of the biggest strengths of this franchise is the editing and the way that he chooses to kind of craft the stories and bring them together and find find beats to hit where uh, characters where you're jumping from character to character um, and and story thread to story thread to kind of give us a little cliffhanger or to kind of uh, emphasize a particular moment things like that like I, I find that he does that incredibly effectively over the course of this and it's um yeah it's it's really nice and I I should say like I so much of my impression of the of the Smiggle you know, Sam and Frodo bit is that the ring goes east. The that part of the book is a slog for me, or that book of the of the epic uh, novel is is a slog. And so I never look forward to it when I get to this part of the movie because I'm carrying a lot of narrative baggage from my memory of being just bored to tears getting through that segment of the book. I do think there are a lot of really amazing things performatively that we get to celebrate in who these characters become by virtue of separating these stories and cutting back and forth right we get we get more scenes of smaller groups of characters together where each of them get to shine we get to figure out who you know Gimli and Legolas and Aragorn really are and we get a lot more with Aragorn and we should say uh once again the extended edition uh we watched this week right i'm assuming you stuck with the extended edition yeah i don't so have the original cuts yeah <laughs> so it's all all extended all. All extended all the way down. And yeah. and so even with the 20 extra minutes <laughs> of credits at the end. Okay, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> uh, but I really do like the extra stuff that we get with Aragorn in particular. Like we get, I feel like it is, the movie does a much better job with that line of the, uh, that particular narrative thread of these guys leading up to the Battle of Helm's Deep to set us up for who he is in Return of the King. And I think that's really special in, in this movie. And I think he did, he did some really great stuff with it. Um, and, and by the same token, 
setting up Gollum for who Gollum, you know, ultimately Gollum and Frodo's relationship as they move toward Mount Doom. Uh, again, great character beats to set them up. And of course, Andy Serkis is extraordinary in his uh, multiple personality performance here. Um, so, uh, yeah, all all really good. Yeah, that's where I stand. Well, since you brought up the extended edition, I, I wonder with this particular film, are there scenes that you remember as being from the extended edition here as opposed to because I know last time we're like, I've only watched the extended edition for such a long period of time that I honestly can't very specifically remember how some of the beats unfolded in the original yeah. theatrical cut. This this little quiz is not going to be good for me, but I think that the most important thing for me is that we actually find out. Uh, I, I don't think it is, re- is revealed in the theatrical cut that Aragorn is 87 years old and more and one of the Dunedain. Um, it's that's left kind of a mystery. Correct. Uh, and I love that. I love that is in here. I think it just uh, it, it solves so many weird mysteries about Aragorn and how he has so many friends <laughs> that um, <laughs> that is a useful uh, bit. And I know that I, I'm not sure. I don't think we get too much more of the ends, but I know there is a there is some extra stuff around um, Merry and Pippin getting in with the ends. And would you like I, me I to run, whole, just run through a list? Yeah, no. I would you rather me just guess? Like I could just guess for the next <laughs> like 45 minutes, and you <laughs> just don't say anything. <laughs> okay, new scenes in this. Elven rope. The scene with the at the open of the film is, is yeah. new. That's awesome. The massacre at the Fords of Isen when they find uh, Theodred oh, had been... yes! So useful, too, right? Doesn't that solve a major hole? Like, oh, we saw them, but we didn't see them get get got. Well, the funeral, the, his funeral also was new, so... <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was, right. that was out of there. Uh, to your point about the uh, Ents, the Song of the Entwives is new. Yep. Um, the the heir of Numenor, we talked about uh, that. That's new. The Ent Draft, when Merry and Pippin, or Pippin specifically, is drinking the Ent water and taller. growing taller. Yep. Uh, Brago, the little bit about the horse, is new. Uh, the Ring of Barahir is new. That's when uh, a Worm Tongue is talking to Saruman, how he saw this strange ring on, on uh, his finger, on Aragorn's finger. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, he's one of the Dunedain. That's new. Sons of the Steward, that whole bit with Faramir and Boromir, that's all new. Wait, which but wait, which bit? The flashback bit? The flashback bit. That's all new. Oh, so, yeah, that stuff that is that some of that stuff is so cemented in my head as canon in the theatrical I didn't remember that as new. In fact, uh Sean Bean, I believe, was not seen at all in in this. Um Wow. So it's it's uh yeah, I don't think that they ended up fi- showing him at all. Uh, uh, Fangorn comes to Helm's Deep. That was uh, that was new. When you see the forest walking, I love that. The final tally between uh, Gimli and Legolas was new. Like some of this stuff is like seriously, they didn't have that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, Flotsam and Jets- Jetsam. The scene when uh, I, I think that's how the chapter's name is in the book, but that's where um, uh, Merry and Pippin are in the water outside of Isengard, and they find all the food and pipe weed and all that mm-hmm. farewell to faramir that is new and of course the credits and that's just the new scenes then you have the extended scenes the taming of smeagol these are just they've added more to it the urukai the burning of the westfold the banishment of Eomir, night camp at fangorn the passage of the marshes the white rider i mean literally every scene like you walk through all of it 
like yeah. everything has extended stuff. But those those ones that are those are the new scenes in the film. Can we just revisit, I think, an age-old question you and I have talked about, but given specifically the context of this film, there's so much that was touched in the extended edition. At what point do you think maybe you should just have made the movie you wanted to make in the first place? Well, it does boil down to the problem of working with a studio. And this is, this is yeah, this is what filmmakers are always going to be contending with. I want to release this really long movie. Well, we need to be able to fit three or four screenings a day. At the rate you're doing it, it's going to fit two screenings a day, and we can't have that. Yep. We need to be able to pay off um, you know, what we spent on this thing. And so it it falls to that. And I think what happens with a lot of these studios, especially when they feel it's going to be something successful, they probably already cut these pre-deals saying, you know what, you need to bring it under this length because we need to fit this many screenings per day, but we'll let you do a director's cut. We'll let you do an extended edition so that you can release the version you want later. And I think that's uh, something that likely happens with some of these successful filmmakers. Yeah, and, and because I think you see it with um, stuff like uh, Aragorn and and um, the the death of the sun, like you have Theodred, to cut out yeah. entire yeah Theodred. You have to cut out entire character lines in order to make a movie like this make sense, and that that is enormously challenging to wrap my head around. Like how you would begin to make those decisions, in particularly in a book like this. So I, I get it, but. I I think this is one of those another one of those examples following directly on last week where the extended edition is is the new canon. It is the thing you should watch if you're a fan of these movies or or want to explore these explore these movies. You can always press pause and take a pee break. We should also say I don't think the theatrical cut is bad. Like there's no way I walked away from the theatrical cut of this movie and said, "Oh, this is terrible. They should go fix it." Like there. That's the difference, I think, with, with yeah. Star Wars. They had a great movie and then made it worse. Right? <laughs> you know, like this is not that this is all the extended stuff in this movie just augments the stuff that I already liked. For me, too. And, and I think that's that's why this works so well. Um, and, you know, I, I think there are cases to be made like the Star Wars you know, extended editions versus like many of Ridley Scott's films where it's like I kind of that original no one should go watch that again because clearly his vision was the director's cut of you know one of whichever one of his films like it happens very frequently with his films where it just seems like for whatever reason they don't trust him to make some of these to release some of these bigger stories theatrically and some of that I think might be length but I do think that there's some of it where it's it you know they just I don't know probably test audiences they said oh we need to make this more audience friendly yeah yeah okay so we're that's that's the setup of the differences between the extended edition what we watched and the the structure of the overall narrative relate relative to the book so then what stands out to you about this movie and our performances herein leading into that i just i I suppose indirectly. I just want to comment on something I brought up last week, and this is another example of the cave troll abuse in Middle Earth. Uh, we definitely <laughs> see that here, where these two cave trolls that we see here, who are um, they just open doors? <laughs> they they open the gate. They've they're like you know uh, tied to the handle to to open the gate, uh, the black gate. And uh, I'm assuming there must be four, two on each side. I, I'm not exactly sure how that works. But regardless, um, yeah, they are kind of treated like elephants in our world. Um, but I think that the Oliphants in their world are, are probably treated better than, than the cave trolls are. So anyway, just had to get that off my chest. 
I, I feel like this is going to be just, this is the center, the middle point in our ongoing conversation about the treatment of CG animals in this, these movies, because we have to come back to the Oliphants in, in the final film. Oh, yes, uh, we do. I, I, I think a case could be made that they are not treated well and wouldn't have wanted to join that army in the first place. Uh, <laughs> Very true. Very so. true. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Anyway, performances. Okay, so we've got a lot of our returning characters, obviously. Do any of them, do we want to talk about any of them, or, uh, like, do any of them stand out, or do we want to, uh, like, talk about some of the the new faces that we've been introduced to here? Well, I, I just, let's just take a minute briefly and talk about what what changes we see in our existing characters, right? And I think we should start with Frodo and Sam. I mean, Frodo is still, of the entire arc of this saga, uh, so far, he is our our protagonist. We start with the journey of the ring. The ring has to get to Mordor. We're not at Mordor yet. His story is not over, right? But other characters are becoming more and more important. And I think that's a really interesting thing that you get in this kind of a giant saga, how these characters that were once partner characters and B-story characters become elevated to something more than they are over the course of tw- our 12 hours together with them in the case of these extended editions. So starting with Frodo and Sam, they're still our protagonists. They're going through the, I, I think when we look at Elijah Wood, um, his performance of Frodo moving closer and closer to Mordor is really quite good. And I really like the idea that um, that he's feeling or manifesting like the physical sensation of weight uh, in addition to the sort of emotional, spiritual uh, like level of, of, of weight of the ring around his neck. I like all of that quite a bit. And I think what you get here, because we have so much of Frodo and Sam alone, we get more of their relationship, sort of the intimacy of their friendship and their bond kind of manifesting. And I like that a lot, too. Like that, it just, I am left with a good feeling, even as dark as their journey is. Especially because their journey is also then saddled with the addition of Gollum as the third character who has such a, that, I mean, the split personality, which we definitely see, and how that really starts affecting the relationship between Sam and Frodo uh, in, in important ways. You know, Frodo recognizes a lot of what he's starting to feel about himself in Gollum and wants to take care of Gollum. For, uh, Sam never trusts Gollum. And so there, there is a, such an interesting rift in their relationship that I think is an incredibly important one. I think it's valuable, though, to see that Sam is still genuinely always trying to help Frodo, even when Frodo can't recognize it, like we certainly see when they're in Osgiliath before the, uh, the winged Black Rider. And uh, like I, I, I feel that that relationship is such a critical one for the story. I, I find it to be you know, just so powerful. Over the course of this film, I think it's um, developed in really strong ways. Well, and there's some really neat sort of uh, nods to the original movie when they're on the path and the Nazgul on a horse comes up and they they're hiding under the log. Here they are on the marshes and the Nazgul on the winged uh, wraith is, uh, you know, flying above them and they're hiding under the tree and we get some similar sort of, you know, the ring is calling to him and that just taking the Nazgul and putting him from a horse onto a winged kind of dragony thing is is a really cool way to level up their continued sort of uh, powers and affinities with dark creatures. And what a cool reveal, too, of it. So cool. Really, really cool. So, um, you know, those are those kinds of things. Those those beats work really well for me. Yeah. Meanwhile, 
we have Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli running across the prairie. And we do have our continued discussion of comedy, thy name is Dwarf. Dwarfs are natural sprinters. We're not great over long distances. I, what do you think of the evolution of Gimli as, uh, as a character in this trio? All of them, I guess we should say, but Gimli because we pointed at him first. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's fine. I think it's funny. I, you know, there are those, those moments that you do question some of this. It's like in a horror movie. It's like they're running, like the, you have innocent victims running from a killer who's walking, yet the, yet the killer somehow always manages to catch up to them. And in this film, it's the same thing. It's like Legolas and Aragorn are really fast and Gimli is shown over and over as never quite being very fast. It's like, why do it, it, it either is two things. It's like Gimli does have natural sprinting moments where he somehow catches up. We just never see it. Or it's like they're going to have to stop and wait for him at some point. And in that case, why not just run at Gimli's pace since he's the slowest of the three? He's the slowest one. Right. Everybody take a beat. Right. It just boils down to the magic of cinema to just somehow always make him ending up, even though he's always slow, he's still always managing to to uh, be at their speed when we need him to be. And so it's one of those moments that I, I kind of chuckle at as I watch this film. I think uh, from an effects perspective on Gimli, uh, there are bits of this movie where I, I don't feel like they uh, they treat him with uh, uh, appropriate and consistent height. I, uh, there are times when I'm looking at him and I think, OK, I get kind of his stature. And then we're, we're on the, the barricade at Helm's Deep and he is much shorter than I think he should be uh, for the joke. Um, so. I, d- I don't know. I'm, I have I have some issues with Gimli's presentation o- overall in this movie, and I, I, uh, it feels a little inconsistent, even though uh, I love Bryce Davies' performance here so so much. I, I think he's I think it's really great. And and my memory of using Gimli for uh, as a punchline, much less so than uh or or much more so in my memory than i think is is actually in the film like my memory of it was he's just a punching bag for everybody else but that is not the case he's he's actually quite a useful and and fun character and it's definitely something that runs through the books right there is always this level of gamesmanship going on between gimli and legolas and the counting of bodies and stuff like that's all from the book and it very much is a fun way to kind of evolve those two characters who it seems like from the last film they kind of paint dwarves and elves to be natural enemies even though they just seem to not really get along i I think they find a nice way to kind of make sure that that's working in this film well and like the relationship between frodo and sam the relationship between legolas and gimli just gets better and and more interesting as a result of their differences that came before so i think that's really great there are a couple of moments where it feels a little bit gamey on jackson's part uh, and from the perspective of editing this film, that we are to believe um, what we see. And one of them is when the white wizard is upon them and they're having their little whispered conversation and they turn around and there's Gandalf right there and he's all white and big. And like, it feels weird to me that they didn't see him or hear him coming 
faster or that Gandalf wouldn't have done something to indicate his presence. That whole sequence allowing that little bit of a jump so they could be surprised is very strangely paced to me, and I, I don't really believe it. And the other is when they're standing on the top of the hillside and they hear the hoofprints and they jump behind some rocks and the riders of Rohan are right there. Like, there is no conceivable way to be that the ro- the riders could have possibly missed our trio standing atop this rise in the field. And it makes me crazy, crazy. I'm watching this with my daughter, and she's shouting the same moment. She's like, it never would happen that way. The riders can speak to horses, and yet they can't see 50 yards, let's just say 50 yards in front of their faces, the three figures that are crossing right in front of their path, Andy. So a couple of those little moments in this movie that that make me a little bit crazy. Do you have a retort? Well, first, okay, as far as Gandalf goes uh, and the appearance of him, my recollection is that that's fairly, like, book accurate. Like, I I don't think Gandalf came into that scene. Gosh, I really can't remember, but I don't think he came into that scene necessarily fully in, like, uh, with his presence as Gandalf in his head yet. Like, he was still kind of in that, like, coming back state. That's accurate. But also, it's... Um, I, I think that it really plays in the book like it is Saruman and there's this like they can't quite see and it's it's like there's something in it that makes it seem like like they they think it's Saruman like I, I just feel like it's really played in the book and so to that end I think Jackson was trying to find a way to uh, make it seem very magical and wizardry where he is obscuring their view of him in some capacity because i mean they obviously had uh christopher lee reading some of those lines and then they kind of audibly blended the audio between lee's reading of them and mckellen's reading of them until finally it just becomes full mckellen and all the white goes away so that to me doesn't bother me in the least it feels very much like what you would expect in a moment like that the problem is he's sitting, He apparently, if, if I'm to like pull back and not see what the editor wanted me to see, he comes back and he's shrouded in darkness, right? And because he doesn't blow up like a big light bulb yet. He's shrouded in darkness immediately behind these three guys that, to your, to your description, he's not fully in his head. How does he even know who they are? Or maybe he knows who they are and he's just, what's, what does he want to say, boo? He gives them long enough to have a whispered conversation between themselves while standing right behind them and only blows up when they turn around and say, ha And that makes me, uh, that's the part that makes me crazy, not Gandalf's manifestation between, you know, discovering that he's no longer the gray and is now the white and figuring out his own identity. That's all great. It's the it's the jump of our trio that makes me a little bit bonkers. Like, what are they waiting for? <laughs> what is Gandalf waiting for? So, well, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I just take it as as he he is approaching them in a wizardy way where they they don't necessarily can't see him. I don't exactly know. I don't I don't think I have the answers. I I just just would say it's never really bugged me that. That somehow, as a wizard, he ends up immediately behind them. I would let that stand. I'll let that stand. But where do you, what do you think about the writers thing? It makes me nuts. I, it doesn't make me nuts. I, I think because, I mean, it certainly happened in Fellowship. We have the scene where they're all on the hill and uh, Saruman's crows come flying toward them. Yes. And and the, they get behind all the rocks and stuff just before the crows uh, are, come into frame. 
And then, it, but I mean, also, it seems like the crows obviously did see them because Saruman, you know, talks about it. So I don't know. I guess, you know, we've talked about this, this whole idea in the past about filmmakers who use what you see in the frame as the world of the film, as opposed to filmmakers who there is a world and we're only seeing what happens to be in the frame, but there's a world that these characters exist in outside of that. And I think that to a certain extent, there is an element you could say that Jackson is using those tricks that Spielberg used. I mean, we talked about it quite a bit in uh, our very first series for this, Indiana Jones. Uh, They use that, you know, Spielberg definitely uses that technique. If it's not in the frame, no one in the film sees it. And I think that it kind of plays here. And so if the filmmaker is doing that and it's done in a way where, you know, there's, there's some consistency, I guess, you know, it's one of those. It's one of those things I notice, but I don't. I don't think it drives me crazy like it drives you crazy. It's a yeah, cinematic it tool. <laughs> it's just a, it's a cinematic tool, and so it's just. Yeah. I guess you know yeah. what he's telling us is like. Um, I, I don't know what he's telling us, but you know these three. Uh, and, you know, and and to be fair, they all are wearing their elven cloaks also, so that makes them harder to spot. Oh, you know that might be the best defense of it uh, that you've had yet. It's an elven cloak thing, which <laughs> you know when you put it over your head, you turn into a rock. We see that in this movie later. So yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, that's what we, we are completely sidetracked on our character discussion. Uh, how do you feel then about Legolas and, and, uh, Aragorn and their, uh, evolution in this movie compared to the first? I don't know if I have anything to say about Legolas in this film. He just kind of continues doing his thing. Utility player. Yeah, Aragorn is the one who really has a bigger story because with him, it really becomes, uh, more of development with his relationship uh, with Arwen that we have over the course of this and the and the challenges he's having over deciding does he pursue his place as king does he uh do, you know where where does he stand with Arwen and their relationship and and if she is going to go to the gray havens and uh, you know they're trying to figure like he's sorting that out all meanwhile Eowyn is here and uh is drawn to him Although, you know, she certainly is uh, one of those people who kind of develops that crush with somebody that uh, will never uh, be interested in her because he can't let go of Arwen. So I I think that his story is developed well. I I enjoy what we're getting from him. I do, too. And I think what's so interesting about this is that the first it seems like the first two movies, I I guess you could say that all three movies center around Frodo and the journey of the ring. But in terms of Frodo, Sam, those their character journey, it's really the first two movies that are the strongest for them. And then Aragorn is sort of a secondary character in the first movie, but becomes a principal motivator of the last two movies to the point where the the you know our our finale makes him kind of the uh, the the central kind of figure of of that story and i think it's really interesting the way they they sort of overlap and i never lose the thread of any of these characters and i think that's a really like to me that's a huge compliment to the adaptation of of from book to to these films so um Loving it. So that leads us now, I think, to some new characters, right? Well, uh, we didn't really talk about um, Gandalf's transition, or or Marion Pippin, but Gandalf's transition from Gandalf the Grey in the last film to now the leader of the wizards here in this film, replacing Saruman. He has now become Gandalf the White. Um, I love that transition that he makes, and I, I think as a character, it makes him... There, I do feel like there is a shift in kind of just the way that Ian McKellen plays him and his demeanor. I really enjoy 
the transition. I enjoy the look of him so much in this film. And just, I, I think that it makes for an interesting, uh, character journey, uh, with him as we kind of see him go through that. In the beginning of the movie and at the end of the last movie, Gandalf falls, uh, and to the Balrog and we don't see where he goes. So the beginning of this movie opens to him falling. We get to replay him falling off the cliff, and he falls down, and it turns out he's in a real rough-and-tumble fight with the Balrog, right? And he falls through this big hole and into the water, and then Frodo wakes up. Later, when Gandalf reveals himself to his his buddies, uh, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, he retells more of the conversation that he was uh, actually in a fight, but now he's on a mountaintop and he eventually kills the Balrog, right? And he is really broken, but he's still alive. Was part of it, part of the fight, a dream? Or are we to, to, to I don't remember how this was handled in the book, frankly. Was Frodo somehow connected to Gandalf? Did he see somehow the the existence or did he dream up that part and it turns out it all took place on a mountaintop no i think all of that was just a uh, storytelling device used by jackson my recollection is that that never is made uh, a point in the books at all i think it all boils down to gandalf when he makes himself appear as gandalf the white and tells them he tells them, you know, he fought, I mean, basically, you know, he says, you know, I fought from the lowest depths to the highest heights or whatever. And, and so they just found a way to start this film in a really fascinating cinematic way. And then they use that, that moment as that transition when Gandalf and the Balrog hit the water to cut to Frodo waking up from a nightmare. I don't necessarily think that it was Frodo seeing that as a vision. I just think it was an idea to kind of show that he is still being affected by the loss of Gandalf. And it's just a cinematic tool to kind of get the story moving. That has always been how I've seen it. But I was reading a summary of of the film, and I thought it was interesting that they actually use the words, you know, he wakes from a dream of Gandalf's fight. I had never actually seen it that way, that he was just waking up on the side of a mountain and it was hard because he lost his buddy. But um, yeah, so okay, good. Well, that feels better. Okay. Gandalf's reveal the when he goes and, and talks to um, Theoden uh, is fantastic uh, because he's talking, because he's Sauron is talking through the mouth of the cursed Theoden. He says, you have no power here, Gandalf the Grey. And <laughs> Gandalf whips off his gray coat to reveal his white coat. And suddenly it's like a video game level up. And I think that is so satisfying to me. It's like a huge hero moment. He's like, I'm not gray anymore. Now I'm white. Everybody knows white's better than gray. And now to demonstrate that Saur- Saruman and Gandalf are on the same same level uh, is is really satisfying. I wouldn't even say the same level. I think at this point, uh, Gandalf would be more powerful than Saruman because uh, I, I think that Is that he because has... he's a new wizard? No, I just think that because Saruman has uh, been corrupted by Sauron. And so I just think that uh, Gandalf likely has, has um, you know, a little more power at this point. I thought you were making a call to the Twilight universe where the new vampires are the strongest ones. New new white wizards are the stronger ones. Maybe, probably not making that. You don't. Reference. You don't love that. All right. Well, it was worth a shot. <laughs> but uh, but to your point, 
that scene of Gandalf, um, you know, confronting Theoden, and of course, Grima Wormtongue is in there, and like that is one of my all-time favorite scenes in this film and the franchise. Like just the way that it's played is incredibly effective with the music and and the performances, and just the way that the way that Jackson constructed the scenes with Theoden, the way that he's talking and and hearing Saruman's voice coming from him, like all of that just is in, so incredibly effective. Love it. And and I love that when Theoden comes too, when he's finally freed of this curse, he's he's thankful, but he's not totally in the bag, like for, you know, whatever these guys are trying to convince him to do. Like there is still conflict to be had as he regains his own agency. And I think that is... Uh, I, that that's a strong interpretation of this character who I think could cinematically could have easily been sort of neutered in terms of his agency. Um, and, and I love the way he's portrayed, right? There's nothing better in depicting that than the moment when he is sitting on his throne. Gandalf is now sitting by his side instead of Grima Wormtongue. And Gandalf is essentially doing exactly what Grima had been doing. He's kind of giving him his consult and kind of pushing him one direction and even goes so far as to put his hand on on the king's arm and the arm of his chair. And you just get a look down of Theoden at that hand on his arm, kind of realizing I'm in the same position I was yeah, and realizes that he has to make his own decisions and make his own stand. And I, even if it ends up to Gandalf's eyes being the wrong decision, I love the way that that plays because of that very thing. Meanwhile, back at Isengard, or at least the Fanghorn forest, we, you know, we, as you mentioned, we didn't talk about Mary and Pippin. They are, uh, they have escaped now their Orkin campaign. And I just got to say, the Orcs and uruk like, this is some of my favorite depictions of those characters because it is such... They are so terrifying and creepy in their design. And just the way they're speaking and the way they're, uh, like, fighting, like, everything about the Orcs and the uruk that particular group that had kidnapped Mary and Pippin are, and they had are they're all on their way to Saruman's. It's just such a an effective group that has some interesting characters. And um I, I don't know. I love that group and it works really well as these horrifying creatures who are, you know, are have kidnapped Mary and Pippin or are trying to take them back to Saruman. I, I love the way that those those characters play. I totally agree. And the performances of these, I, I think it's uh, Sala Baker and uh, Jed Brophy who are who play uh, opposite Urukai and Orcs. There, uh, Jed Brophy plays Sharku and Snaga. I th- I think two different Orcs. And those the the long face lip licking, let me just eat his legs kind of sequence uh, as as they're <laughs> negotiating the orcs and the urukai are negotiating over whether we should eat Mary and Pippin or that whether they should be delivered to Saruman unspoiled. Uh, I think is so 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 good. Uh, it is both funny and threatening, and uh, the escape of Mary and Pippin into the forest is terrific, and we get to. Uh, to see what happens when the the forest comes to life. That leads oh, us yes. into, I think, the uh, the discussion of the Ents. Uh, our principal Ent, played also uh, by John Rice davies Voiced, I should say. Voiced by John Rice davies yeah. No, it's... Uh, I was uh, it was definitely a character that I loved in the book. I was very curious to see how they were going to bring the Ents to life. 
and I was very satisfied with what they did because they came across in such a um and I don't know, just a, a realistic, I guess you could say, way where it just made them full characters. And uh particularly when you have those moments where it's like, you know, uh Treebeard takes them to the Entmoot and uh Mary and Pippet are like bored out of their skulls because these Ents take so long just to say good morning, even though by the time they finish it's nighttime. It's just so fun and they just do such a good job of creating these characters. It's uh it worked uh really well for me to uh to see what they did with it. The entire discussion of the Ents and where it fits into the move against Isengard, I think, is really well played. Uh I felt like mostly the gambit that the hobbits play to get the Ents to go south toward Isengard is is really satisfying. It doesn't feel like a like it would be such an obvious gambit to the Ents who move slowly and are are naive when they respond emotionally. And uh, Treebeard makes the call to the Ents to come from the forest and fight against Isengard. I thought that was really really great. When you look at some of the CG in that sequence, for me. Um, that's where some of the, I, I think, the CG armies, the CG orcs uh, fall apart. And and that is the interaction between water and the orcs. Lots of great rock tossing and the trees and everything that, as they're moving around. I love it. I really love it. And the use of CG and miniature and all of these things. I'm not taken out of that at all. But I did notice, and it's not my fault. It's actually my daughter's watching along with me. She says, look at when the water hits the orcs, the orcs don't fall. They fade out. Like you're looking at them closely, they actually you actually lose them because they fade away in the water. They don't they don't disappear, and it feels like a feels like an artifact of 2002 sort of CG. Um, and uh, and so now it's kind of all I can all I can see. But otherwise, I love the fight against Isengard, and I love watching it get flooded, and I love that it feels so satisfying to have the earth. The, these things of the earth, these trees overtake, uh, you know, manifest industry. Yeah, no, that's what I love about it is that sense of um, the earth reclaiming after, you know, you have that uh, moment from uh, Saruman talking about, uh, you know, it's the time of industry and all of that as they're just ripping the earth apart and damming the waters and burning the trees and stoking the flames, everything that they can do to build this army of 10,000. And uh, meanwhile, it it takes this uh, this ant army, which isn't a huge army, uh, not a lot of time to kind of, uh, I guess you could say, set things right in Isengard. For sure. I just got to say what's one one funny thing that I always think about <laughs> when I watch this scene is, you know, we saw what Saruman had done to Isengard. He kind of tore out all the forests and everything. And there are these massive holes where uh, when the water comes, it kind of pours in. But it's like these massive holes that uh, would go down to where they would be, you know, had all their their engines and their birthing places for the Urukai and whatnot. When later, when it's flooded, it just it gives me anxiety watching Mary and Pippin walking around <laughs> thinking that one of these moments they're going to step and it's not going to be ground under their feet, but one of these holes <laughs> yeah, going to be like, it's just like one of these awful moments where it's just like, it's, it's, I don't know. You, you, you think about like 
the churning waters of canals and how, you know, God only knows what sort of nonsense has fallen into canals that you could potentially, you know, slice your leg on and get uh, tetanus or something. And, and here they are in this place that likely has all of that and full of all sorts of, I mean, uruk germs floating around in the water and everything. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you know, the weird things that cross my mind. Also weird that I never had any sort of canal anxiety until right now. That's strange <laughs> that you just You're gave welcome. that to me. That was really kind. I, I feel like we need to, at this point, we need to transition to the big moment of this film, which is the handling of Helm's Deep, don't you think? Well, we also need to talk about Faramir. Do you want to, because uh, we haven't really talked about that side of the story. Um, what Do you want to do Helm's Deep first? Or? No, let's do Faramir. That leads us to Helm's Deep anyway. All right. I like Faramir. I actually really like Faramir. And I, I think I like Faramir. David Wenham is, is a I, is an actor that I that I like. And I, I think he's a charismatic looking guy. He makes for a great younger brother of Boromir. Um, I, I like that the extended edition, that is one thing that this does uh, give us is uh, uh, we get John Noble as Denethor in, in this flashback sequence, which I think is really great. I don't know if Faramir is a is a controversial performance here uh, or is a controversial position here particularly in his kind of boar-headed approach to hearing the story of of uh, uh you know of Frodo and Sam when they get into their mountain hideout i i it does it does it feel good to you i mean it's it's expanded from the book but there's definitely that element of faramir having that same internal battle with himself that his brother did and and eventually getting through it, coming out the other side, and then, I mean, it's the exact same thing. He lets Frodo go, and then as one of his guards in the film says, you know, you, you know that is against orders from, uh, from the steward, and he's just like, so be it, uh, that my life is forfeit. I mean, it's very much from the book. What we're getting, though, is a lot more expansive build to that, because um, we actually, in the, in the book, they only go so far as to the cave and that place where we have that whole thing play out. Here, we actually uh, go even farther, where he takes them all the way down to Osgiliath, the town down on the the plains between Mordor and the White uh, City. Uh, so, so we're getting much more of that story of him, which gives him, as a character, more time to kind of have this sense of, I'm doing what's right because of this relationship I have with my father who hates me and, and thinks so much less of me than my brother. And I'm trying to do what's right. Like we're getting a bigger development of him as a character to a point where he finally realizes um, like that same thing where he realizes if he brings the ring, it's the wrong thing to do. And so he does free Sam and Frodo. And I think that what we get out of the development here is just a stronger, richer character of Faramir. And I, I think that there probably are some people who don't like that we have so much expanded from the book in this particular part of the story. But for me, I think that it gives it a richer sense of things because we actually are seeing exactly what happens with not just how man reacts to that proximity of the ring, but also dealing with a father situation and then dealing with what's right. So for me, I think that it's it's a very interesting way to develop that story thread 
Yeah, I think me too. And I, I think it's yet another example of why Frodo is the right guy for this job, right? That's really what it has to convince us of, that every time Frodo comes into contact with a human, a man, um, you know, wizard, like they all have to fight their demons that Frodo doesn't appear to have to fight in the same way. And that's the message that keeps coming home to to me uh about this sequence so i am uh i'm curious to see how it continues to to play out in the extended edition of return of the king i honestly don't i don't know why but i i feel like i i don't remember as much of of that character in return of the king i have uh, i don't know why but i'm eager to watch it again yes then that should bring us to helm's deep yeah everybody goes to helm's deep big strong fortress and we're all going to stronghold and we're all going to go behind the walls and nobody's got the orcs are going to break against these walls like water on rocks well but it's also the fact that this goes to the development of industry by saruman who has started exploring the ideas of what you can do with essentially gunpowder as he builds this giant bomb that the uh, orcs are then able to use to actually blow a hole in the wall and that i think is that key element that gives them the advantage in Helm's Deep is they, they've created this tool that is uh, beyond what our, uh, you know, our, our people hiding in Helm's Deep have ever seen before. And people in Helm's Deep have also never seen, it sounds like, battle ladders. Those ladders are amazing. So between bombs and ladders, you know, this uh, Helm's Deep is made uh, a fairly easy uh, cutting. Well, fairly easy, but at the time of the film being made, this was one of the, uh, in fact, I think it was the longest battle sequence on film. I think until, and it's not even film, but I think one of the episodes of Game of Thrones, and I I can't remember which one, is it The Long Night? Is that the one? Where it's like the entire episode is one big fight? Yeah. That beat this scene out as the longest battle scene filmed but up up until this point helm's deep 40 minutes was like the longest battle scene on film yeah so i mean it it takes a long time to get through that wall it does (laughs) take a long time to get through the wall and it does take a lot of guys to get through that wall but once they manage to blow up the uh blow up the wall uh everybody goes inside to helm's deep uh, inside to the keep as the orcs storm we have some great character moments we have a lot of wonderful uh, action beats close-up action beats lots of great arrow shooting I, I don't think we ever see legolas retrieving his arrows but we have to imagine he does and uh, he also <laughs> surfs on a shield and we have the great counting bits uh, which uh, again yes. as you mentioned earlier are from from the book so um all of that is is really great there is like I, I don't know. I, I don't remember if if this was a again a Tolkien thing, but but having the Olympic torch runner um running <laughs> up the crowd, it feels like he's about to light the uh light the actual Olympic torch. Uh I thought that was fun. It would be really fun if the actor who played that running torch guy was actually an Olympic athlete who ran the torch. That would have been <laughs> a real hat on a hat for me. But um I I think it was actually I mean I I think it's an exhilarating fight like it's an exhilarating battle. I, I think what you're saying is you you'd actually like to see the Olympic runners running with the torch having to get through people shooting arrows at them while they did so. I think you want that to be a little bit more of a competition is really what you're saying, Andy. <laughs> I wasn't saying that, but now I am. I have just re- <laughs> you have just retconned me, and I approve. <laughs> 
Finally, I'll watch the Olympics. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, I think it's an exceptional battle. And to your, to your point, like it's, it's almost a little bit hard to, um, hard to dissect because it's very busy, but we do have some great, uh, some great isolated moments. For example, when Aragorn and Gimli go out the back way and we have the dwarf tossing. Uh, a bit where they jump in to give the distraction and uh, so that they can reinforce the door from the inside um, from the orcs. And so they, they throw themselves onto the main, um, the main walkway. I don't know the entrance, (laughs) the main path and, um, and, and cause a lot of, of damage. Those moments are, are fine and fun and super practical. And, um, and I, I think easy for me to celebrate those moments in particular. Uh, in this thing, the wide shots, the massive, um, you know, scenes of orcs running up the battlements, climbing the ladders like I, none of that took me out. Like when you talk about the large battle scenes and the duplication of characters and the and the or of, of orcs, you know, using CG, like all of that, I thought was actually quite beautiful. And Helm's Deep is, is presented just dark enough that none of the big things really took me out of out of the sequence. Well, and that's a good question. Like I, 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 I've watched the behind the scenes of this, but it was like when I first picked this stuff up. So it's been quite a long time since that I, I looked at all this, and I can't remember. Did they use many CG duplicating in these battles? Because for some reason, in my head, this particular battle was largely all real people. But uh, and it was more like the battle on Pelennor uh, at the end of Return of the King. Like that is one where we have a lot of the CG duplication and and armies and stuff. You know, my my memory of it is, is that when when you're looking at the distance of any of the wide shots and the sweeping shots of of, like sweeping across the field of of battle, you get a lot of replicated CG orcs. Oh, like when you see like the ranks, when you you see like, yeah, the ranks, like, yeah, for example, Aragorn coming up over the hill and you see him looking down and you see, yeah, okay, yeah, right. Yeah, that stuff doesn't, that, yeah, doesn't take me out. Yeah, I, I, what I wonder, and I, what I don't remember is like when you see, the, I think when you see the ladders go up against the wall, a lot of those orcs that are hanging off those giant ladders are all CG, and uh, it's when they're when you get close up and they're coming over the wall, those are all obviously practical. Yeah, right, right, right. The the finale, the big hero moment when Aragorn says, "Hey, you know what? We should ride out of here, and it'll be a big deal. We're going to be Mister Big Deal." for a little while on horseback uh-huh what did you think of that like that's a big hero moment did you did you buy it did you did you feel it yeah i think all of that works really well i i mean i think the battle of helm's deep was just put together really strongly i think there were points where uh where jackson uh walsh and boyens probably realized we need to we can't just have fighting we still need to have moments in here with characters you know starting to step back from their confidence in what they can do, things like that. And so I think you end up with those moments where you you have those character beats. Legolas is starting to uh, complain about the fact that they're not going to be able to do it. And then you have like Aragorn talking to the kid and sh- talking, showing him how to use his sword and, or checking his sh- sword. Like they, they introduce these little moments that help these, help you kind of 
realize there's like it's not just a bunch of like two sides fighting it's actually people who are having doubts and concerns and can they do it and 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 fluctuating in their confidence levels and and those are the things that i think make this work well when you include that sort of thing uh, because you even have that when they've all had to retreat into that final room in Helm's Deep right before that final ride out where the king is uh, you know not as confident and thinks that it's all over and Aragorn kind of has to give his little uh, two cents and and you know create that inspiration which again goes to the character development of him as the king that we're going to see in the next film right right uh, so at the end, I, you know, I, I feel like when they write, when they do write out, they actually get the benefit of uh, discovering Gandalf in the east, and again high on the rise. And as we have he that said, awesome, he would be. Yeah, yeah, as he said, he would be. He is nothing if not punctual, uh, and, and he rides down with the support of Bones Amir. and his crew. Amir. <laughs> right, right, and, and his crew as they ride down the side of this. Um, I don't know the, into the valley, uh, headlong into the rear flank of the orcs and it's a great bit so the two supporting armies that we have of um uh, of the you know at, at helm's deep we have aomer and we also we also have the who was it who played the main elf who died at the top was that um the the one who came from um i i can't remember his the, name of the elf flank that shows up and totally outclasses all of the armies of men they are they look better their all of their armor is shiny and all of their cloaks are well pressed their arrows are perfect they just deeply outclass everybody else that's there and then we lose the leader who was the friend of Aragorn and we have that moment on the top and you know what's funny about that is i feel like they it's actually a fair and earned even though we don't get a lot of that character from uh you know we have a little bit of him in fellowship of the ring when they go to the Wood Elves, and then we have him here. He just sort of shows up with his buddies, uh, with his army. But I still feel like that was an earned uh, and solemn moment when he is actually killed on top of the um, on top of the, the barracks there. Well, that also speaks to, I, I, I wrote this note because I think it speaks to certainly a style that Jackson has in production, particularly moments where somebody has been struck down and is dying and everything kind of goes slow and the sound kind of gets this echo through it and the person reflects on all of the death surrounding them before they finally die it it definitely seems like as we were talking about some of jackson's like shooting style over the course of the film like that is definitely something that we have here where everything kind of gets that echoey quality and slows down a little bit and all i always hear it with frodo gandalf you know those sorts of moments <laughs> but um but it is that sort of thing here where it it, it uh, is done that way very much to i suppose emphasize the horrors of war and and kind of getting a yes that that feel of it yeah, I think so too. And it's it's like there's a zone around a dying character through which no other evil may pass. Like we need a moment the the moment of reflection dome that falls upon them so that so that nothing else can happen. Like 
Uh, and I, I like it. It gives Aragorn a minute to slide in behind him and catch him as he falls. And, and, um, it, it all just, it all just works for me. It feels like, again, to the point about the extended edition, giving Aragorn an age lets me really feel that he has been a friend of this guy in the past and for, for long enough years to make this a solemn moment. And I think that plays. And it was Haldir is the name of that elf. Haldir. Yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and then uh, everything's fine, and uh, everybody lives happily ever after. Quick question for you. The last film you had Hugo Weaving as Elrond say, Here you are, the Fellowship, the of, Fellowship the Ring. of the Ring. And in yeah. this film, yeah. you, you have a similar uh, monologue done by Christopher Lee as he's talking about uh, all the work he's doing, all the work Sauron is doing. is like, there's something, the two towers. Does that, <laughs> does that bug you? that we're continuing the title, um, saying the titles in these films. I, I think all three of them have it. I, I really do. I think we, do, one, we yeah. do have the return of the king uh, to the to the White City. I, uh, you know, on in principle, it bugs me. But it's also kind of a, a practical observation that there are, in fact, just the two towers. And I don't know how else you would refer to the two towers other than using the words, oh, the two towers, <laughs> if you're referring to them as a countable down, I don't know what else you would do. So I, I'm, I'm okay with it, practically, in this movie. Do you remember, this, this came out in 2002, um, and there was actually talk after September 11th that there were contingents of people who felt that the appropriate thing would be for them to change the name of this film because of the reference to the two towers. Um, do you recall that at all? Uh, no, I don't. And I sort of can't believe you're saying it. Were there really? Do you remember how, I mean, it was, it was big emotional. I mean, they, they, they got rid of the two towers entirely in that Spider-Man, uh, teaser that they had and all this sort yeah. of thing. It was, I do it remember was very that. much because there was a period. thing caught between the two towers, right? The web, right. Yeah. He caught, he caught a helicopter or a plane or criminals. helicopter, right. Yeah. And right. so it was very much a, a thing that people were very, conscious of and i think that smartly i mean <laughs> luckily the book that uh jrr tolkien had written back in the 50s was called the two towers and so they said you know what it's the name of the book it's obviously a fantasy story and we're not going to change the name but i do recall that that was actually a thing that people were considering yeah i i remember that here's another question for you uh we talked briefly in the last film about how white this film is as far as, and it might have been in our post member show chit chat for our members um but in in this franchise it's very much white 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 as far as like the 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 people the look of the story that we have and any of the people of more um you know you know New Zealand uh the Maori uh actors who were on it were all like the uruks or people who were kind of like you know, hidden under makeup. Barring enemies, I mean, we do see some enemies of the Gondor who are arriving, and they're definitely more of a um, Middle Eastern sort of look. And so there's definitely this vibe that they have, which obviously they didn't continue with this uh, franchise in the TV show that Amazon is is doing. But um, aside from that, there is an interesting element that also feels a little dated, which obviously is part of the book. But how do you feel? Does it feel dated? Does it feel 
out of the realm of fantasy and more in the realm of the 50s when the book was written to have Eowyn uh, treated as, oh, you're a woman, you need to go take care of the women and children, you can't fight. It's obviously a huge story point in this franchise, particularly when we get to the next film. But does it end up feeling um, a dated element from this film when you're watching it and go, why are these people like... This isn't the this isn't the fifties. This is a fantastical world. Why why are the women treated this way? Yeah, I mean it's hard. I, I think this is one of those things that we have to look at with a little bit of of forgiveness. That this is who Tolkien was when writing. This is who we were when making this movie. As this is humanity, right? And it 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 is dated. I'm not going to say I don't notice it. Like I, I absolutely notice it. And part of the reason I notice it is because I am hypersensitive to it now. I was absolutely not when this movie came out. And this is the movie we have. Uh, so the, the interesting thing uh, about this entire sort of franchise is that the show, they have demonstrated they're capable of making a show that that feels very different and feels attuned to today and, and doesn't necessarily feel out, out of sorts to me. But I, um, I do sure do notice. Uh, I, I absolutely notice. It's hard. I, I, you can't watch the movie without noticing that they're using. It feels like they are using race to demonstrate a story that is very much about the conflict between race, right? Like that's so much of what the of what the the entire story is is look at all of the different races dwarves elves man orcs urukai like they all look different this is a culture clash that is manifest on a battlefield and to that end i get it the casting of it is is i think a you know it's a it's a thing that is that that's hard not to see it's obviously like they were all already making changes to the book, and you know some people have uh, more issues with that than I do. But the fact that Arwen was added to be such a prominent character over the course of the book uh, became you know a an important point for Tolkien and his I mean not for Tolkien for Jackson and his team making it because they said there's like one woman character. I mean, there's Galadriel yeah. and there's Eowyn. There's just not a lot of women in here. What can we do? Especially, you know, Jackson working with his wife and, and uh, uh, you know, Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens as the other two screenwriters, they were all noticing this. And they're like, well, how can we integrate women into this story more? And so, to your point, they don't necessarily want to change the story. Obviously, the moment with Eowyn in the next film is such a big moment. You want to keep that, and you want to develop her character so that that becomes as important as it needs to be. Earned. Exactly. But yeah, then their challenge is, well, what can we do to give uh, some more women a more prominent role in this? And it really ended up becoming Arwen. But it is one of those things that you do kind of notice. And I am glad in the TV show that they did find ways to integrate more women to integrate more uh, people of ethnic diversity and and make it something that feels a little, uh, you know, I don't know. It just it 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 feels better watching that now. I don't necessarily have the issues watching these because again they were made at the time. They were it it just it is what it is. But to your point, it is certainly something that I do notice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The movie ends. You brought up earlier that uh you know this is this is an interesting split you know choice to split the books the you know and adapt the books with a different split between these stories between book four and five and movie two and three 
And to that end, we don't get to the uh, the big door with the with um, Shelob in this movie. That is pushed to the next movie. Um, we we uh, end on actually a I think a, a real celebration of Andy Circus as we get this final conversation with himself. Um, and I love it. I love the way he says we could let her do it, right? We could let her take care of it and take it when they're dead. Like, that is such an interesting conversation that he has, um, you know, between his two identities. And um, and I, I think it's sort of a perfect tease to what what is to come. Do you have any issues with saving Shelob for the third movie? I don't. I do remember having read these books right before the movies. I was like, <laughs> as I was watching this, I'm like, God, we still have a long way to go because they have to get all the way through Shelob and Frodo needs to be caught by the the orcs and Sam needs to rec- re- realize he's alive. Like all of that is still part of this second book. And I, I think that the way that Jackson, uh, friend, or, or Walsh and Boyens decided to end it actually works really well and giving uh, because honestly, the third book, uh, which is books five and six, it's fairly short. And then you have this huge chunk at the end, which is kind of histories and everything. And so, I don't know, it worked to bring all of that into the third film for me. Because what it also does, is, to your point, it gives us so much, like, gives time for Andy Circus to really develop the character of Gollum and create that fascinating split. And again, speaking to the editing, the way that those conversations are cut when you have the two sides of his head kind of talking with each other. I mean, it's just, it's so well done. And Andy Serkis just nails it. And and for the most part, Gollum still just, you know, is a stunning creature to watch over the course of this film, just incredibly created. And so, yeah, I just, I mean, we haven't really talked about him or the character a whole lot, but it's just, it's just... Um, you can see why he's been able to kind of create this whole industry of this sort of motion capture performance. It's just, I mean, he's so good at it here. So good. So, so good. And and from there, you know, to talk about what he's able to do to take us from um, having a character that is clearly in struggle between these two identities, who then resolves to becoming the identity of Smeagol, the, the beneficial sort of uh, do-gooder for, you know, uh, for Frodo, and then after the betrayal to Faramir to come back and completely switch sides and have the dominant identity be that of Gollum. Um, and so to watch them, watch him lead Frodo and Sam through the woods, through the lovely woods, knowing that he is now 100% duplicitous, that his battle is a uh, battle between himself has been, has been lost is so satisfying for me. It's absolutely satisfying. Then we have this long crane up, the virtual crane uh, up to the uh, uh, up to the side of of the the mountain, and we peer over this the the this sort of cliffside, and we see Mount Doom and Sauron at the top of the tower, and the tower is clearly behind the mountain. Like the mountain kind of comes down, and you can see the slope the slope of the mountain in front of the tower, Sauron's tower in Mordor, and the tower is about the same size as the mountain. Like. It's kind of an extraordinary facility that they've got there in this final tableau of of evil that they're walking into, and uh, I I love it. I think it's actually really really great. Yeah, fantastic. And that's it. Good movie. Good movie. Well, we'll be right back, but first, our credits.
The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Tilman Celestu, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, 10,000 awards. You may begin. 10,000. Uh, 130 wins, 138 other nominations. At the Oscars, it uh, did receive five nominations, it won for, or six nominations, one for Best Sound Editing, Best Visual Effects, a Lost Best Picture, Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound, all to Chicago. Great film, um, but where do you stand on Chicago versus The Two Towers? I really enjoyed Chicago, but I don't I think love I love Chicago. I love Chicago, but do you think, I mean, do you think it, all those losses are legit? I, I mean, I, for me, I just, I love this film so much. I, I would say I would still pick this as my, my pick of the five Chicago gangs in New York, the hours and the pianist are the other nominees. Um, all good films, uh, but two towers for me would be my pick. Uh, film editing also sound. Uh, yeah, our direction, that direction. Yeah, I'd probably just give them all to this. Yeah, I would give them all to this. I think the real question becomes best picture and only to the point of, um, you know, looking at what the Oscars normally does. And and I don't even know if you would say that Chicago deserved best picture, knowing what the Oscars is, if it's really being true to its cloth. Uh, well, here's a question for you. Do you feel any of the performances in this film stood out as um, award worthy? And I'll just say, actors actors in a leading role nominated at the Oscars this year, Adrian Brody wins for The Pianist, Daniel Day-Lewis, Gangs of New York, Jack Nicholson about Schmidt, Michael Caine, The Quiet American, Nicolas Cage adaptation. Should have been Nicolas Cage, right? I mean, aren't we both in the bag for Nicolas Cage adaptation? I, I love him in adaptation. I, I may say Jack Nicholson, but uh, honestly. For about Schmidt. Uh, and I mean, Adrian Brody was great. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I probably am fine with those three over Michael Caine or Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, yeah. honestly, I think Elijah Wood often gets overlooked. I just, I feel like he carries that weight of the ring so much in these films. I, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's recognized as much. But for my money, he would be somebody that I would certainly consider uh, putting in the running. Yeah, I agree. What else, though, besides the Oscars? Do we have more to report? At the Saturn Awards, uh, Fantasy, Sci-Fi, and Horror, it won Best Fantasy Film. Andy Serkis won Best Supporting Actor. It, it tied for Best Costumes with Attack of the Clones, and it won Best Makeup. Viggo Mortensen was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Robin Williams in One Hour Photo. I guess I guess that loosely fits as a horror film. I, I think it's kind of a dark drama, but I guess that's how it got in here. Um, Elijah Wood was nominated for Best Younger Actor, but lost to Tyler um, Hetchlin, Hecklin, I'm not sure how you say his last name, in Road to Perdition. Jackson lost Best Director to Steven Spielberg for Minority Report, which also uh, beat this for Best Writing. Danny Elfman won for Best Music in Spider-Man, um, beating out Howard Shore, and this also lost Best Special Effects to, of all things, Attack of the Clones. 
Last but not least, at the Visual Effects Society Awards, I just wanted to throw this in because, uh, you know, the visual effects in these films really are uh, what make them what they are. It won all but one. It won Best Visual Effects in an Effects-Driven Motion Picture, Best Character Animation in a Live-Action Motion Picture, Best Special Effects in a Motion Picture, Best Models and Miniatures in a Motion Picture, Best Visual Effects Photography, Best Effects Art Direction, Best Compositing, Best Performance by an Actor in an Effects Film for Circus Wood and Aston. And it was nominated for Best Matte Painting, but did not end up taking that one home. Well, and that's the thing I think that is it's worth at least continuing to acknowledge as we talk about these movies like this is the era where like special effects just sort of start to become invisible like the number of sequences that are that are you know compositing sequences that are just so beautiful and so seamless that we forget that there's even effects going on in a particular sequence and uh you know to i love that there exists an award for best performance by an actor in an effects film because that it that's a special sort of uh, acting that is a new and evolving form of performance that that is worth note so i i love it how to do at the um, at the big bad box office well jackson had a bit more for this part of his epic fantasy adventure film 94 million or 157.9 million in today's dollars again it was all kind of one big thing but somehow they still split it apart like the first film, this one opened on the third Friday in December, or December 18th, 2002 specifically, opposite Made in Manhattan, Star Trek Nemesis, Drumline, The Hot Chick, and the limited releases of About Schmidt, Russian Ark, Intacto, and Antoine Fisher. This opened in the number one slot, which it held for four weeks and stayed in the top ten for ten weeks. Like its predecessor, it stayed in theaters for 36 weeks and went on to earn almost $343 million domestically and almost $605 million internationally for a total gross of nearly $1.6 billion in today's dollars. That lands the original theatrical cut with an adjusted profit per finished minute of just over $8 million, earning more than 10 times its budget back. All told, quite the success for this middle story. Wow. That's a, that's a packed... What a packed year. I've totally forgotten. Intacto... Not just a packed year, opposite a, packed, this. a packed week. Packed yeah. week. Yeah. That's bonkers. It's okay. December. It's award season. Yeah. yeah. It's everyone's yeah. getting it out there. Well, um, uh, loved it. Loved watching it. Loved watching the uh, extended edition. Comes in under four hours, but pretty close, especially if you watch all the way to the end of the credits. Worth doing it, though. Does this feel like a middle story for you? Like, does it feel like... Uh, well, we don't, we, you know, it's, I could never watch this by itself because it's just, you know, it starts partway through, it ends before things are finished. Does this end up suffering more for you because it is stuck in the middle? That's, that's interesting. I mean, if you look at the, the sort of, I don't know, the, the middle film tropes, right? That's, they're, they're darker. We expand the universe, right? We get more character development, um, uh, what the stakes go up um, uh, there, and and most important is the cliffhanger ending. I, I feel like this movie absolutely lives up to all of the stereotypes of middle movies, and yet at the end of this movie, I am not disappointed. I'm not disappointed with the big cliffhanger ending. I do feel like it is. It would be. Uh, uh, there, there would be a sense of emptiness if we don't follow up with the third movie. Like, if you try to watch this as a standalone movie, I don't think it holds up for me personally. But I think there's enough going on in the movie if you get at least a bit of a primer on who these characters are that that I think you could 
enjoy it. I don't know. I I it it I don't know that I would ever watch it by itself uh if I'd never seen it, but yeah, if I had never seen it, sure. But I mean, I have, so I don't see any issue with doing so. It's like watching Empire Strikes Back by itself. It's like, yeah. you know, it's a good movie and I'm still going to enjoy it. I know what happens before and after. I don't necessarily need to revisit those just because I'm going to watch this one. Yeah. I generally, sure. I generally do, but I, I don't think that it's required. So, right. Uh, but I do think that's interesting. And I think that this film does still succeed quite well. Me too. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings, but first, here's the trailer for next week's movie closing out this series, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. The eye of the enemy is moving. The end has come. Every day, Frodo moves closer to Mordor. How do we know Frodo is alive? Come to the throne of Gondor. It is time. Give him the sword of the king. Become who you were born to be. The precious sleeping eyes. He means to murder us! Never! I'm not sending him away. Come to me. Order set. The pieces are moving. You come to it at last. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of man fails. When we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. Whatever happens, stay with me. This day, we fight! All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. We shall see the Shire again. You gave away your life's grace. I cannot protect you anymore. We cannot achieve victory through strength of arms. Not for ourselves. But we can give Frodo a chance. Letterboxd, Andy, you know Letterboxd. You've heard of it. It is our favorite social media network for movie lovers. And uh, we support uh, Letterboxd uh, with our own patron account. We actually have an HQ account. It's really special. Uh, and we do that because we love the Kiwi team that uh, puts this thing together. And we like to remove ads from all of our uh, profiles and such. And you can do the same thing to upgrade to a patron or pro account and get 20% off 
by using the code NEXTREEL at checkoff, uh, checkout, checkoff, checkoff's code. It, it exists, and one day you'll use it. <laughs> it's been sitting on your mantelpiece all this time. It's been sitting on your mantle the whole time, and it says next reel. You could also just go to the nextreel.com slash letterboxd, and uh, it, it will redirect you, whisk you over to the sign-out page where you can upgrade for yourself. It works for renewals as well. All right, what are you going to do? Three stars with quibbles, but a big heart? I just love this franchise, so this is it's an easy uh, five-star and heart still for me. Yeah, me too. Me too. Five-star and heart. Easy. No controversy. No controversy. Well, that uh, we'll have that over in our Letterboxd account. Again, don't forget to visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. And speaking of memberships, remember, we have ours too. You can get uh, those pre- and post-show chats that we've talked about. You get bonus episodes, uh, you know, uh, early episodes, ad-free episodes, all sorts of good stuff. You can learn more at thenextreel.com slash membership. So what did you think about Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd, give it, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. This is one of those where you go to the Letterboxd review page and it is one of the, I'm going to say rare in my collection, where you see the review little bar graph of reviews actually has five star being the tallest. Like a lot of the bell fall at a bell curve, maybe four stars is the, is the tallest. But this one is a straight slope up all the way to five stars. Seems like people like this movie, Andy, is what I'm saying. Do you want to go first? You want me to go first? Sure, I'll go first. Uh, I have a, I went low. I went to the bottom of the barrel. I have a half star review. And I'm not even sure if this is uh, meant to be serious or not. But Lily May 92 had this to say. I was born in September 2002. And I saw this movie in theaters when it first came out. Didn't understand a word they said. Slept through the whole thing. Boring. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if Lily May has ever gone back after watching it when she was three months old. That's funny. All right, I've got a four and a half star from my friend Lucy, who does say this may contain spoilers. Four and a half stars. When the effing ends take an entire day to have one short conversation with each other, but the second Treebeard sees what nonsense Saruman has done, he just shouts, and those ends zooped into Isengard so fast and just start busting skulls. And the fact that Saruman thought he was hot S, and then his entire scheme was destroyed by some super old pissed-off trees? Iconic. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. 
Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 